This episode of the Sound System See Here brings the rock steady rhythms of Jar Rastafari. <laughs> Episode 4 of the See Here podcast. This is the podcast where the crew, the sound system crew of Wendy Freeman, Tim Merrill, Bernie Sticky and myself will talk about musically related films. Good evening, afternoon, morning. We're running the full gamut of the international timeline, ladies and gents. Wendy, we'll start with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm here in Chicago. It's 5pm in Chicago. On Saturday afternoon. Yes, right before Easter. Mr. Stickwell, you're next in the international timeline. What? You're at 11 p.m. Saturday it's, night? Uh, yeah, it's 11 p.m. I'm sat here uh, in my pajamas with a mug of cocoa. Oh. And uh, I'm, I'm ready to rock. You, you ought to turn on your just... camera because you've seen me in my pajamas. I, I have. I've seen your pajamas in polka dots. I imagine you're in polka dot pajamas. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can imagine what you like, Wendy. I guess, oh, uh, I I guess you won't find out, will you? <laughs> Steady. <laughs> and Mr. Tim Merrill, who is sharing Sunday morning with me, but he's an hour. Yeah. Good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. All the better for being on this podcast. I have so looked forward to uh, recording again with uh, you fellows. And, and Wendy, it's been two months without you. I, I don't know how we survived. I missed you. I cried. I wept. But you did a wonderful job without me. Oh, I, I don't know. I think it's only half as good as this one's going to be. <laughs> well, I confess that for this one, I just decided to watch some episodes of Babylon 5. That's what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> oh, holy fuck. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Or Babylon AD. I think I watched some Babylon AD as well. No, no, no. no. Wendy, no, no, no. We, we should mention what we're going to be discussing. This is uh, Bernie Sticky's choice film called Babylon, not AD, not... not not the other stuff. No, this is Babylon, man. Babylon. With, uh, I was surprised when I when I watched this and Vin Diesel wasn't in it. I thought, oh, hang on, is this is this the right film? You should know. You suggested it. I'm sure I watched what you asked me to watch. Yeah, I think so. Yes, we'll, we'll soon be, see, won't we? We'll be talking about a film from 1980, or was it 81? Should have done the research. Uh, directed. Uh, I think it was released in 81. Sorry, right. Morris. I think it was released in 81. So Direct- yeah. Directed by one Franco Rosso, uh, and um, I'm really looking forward to discussing this. Uh, but uh, before we do, we should uh, each have a you know quick go around of the international table and talk about some music we've been listening to, or you know one particular film that we've in- enjoyed. I know that we've probably all watched more than one film, but just something that stood out for you in the last month since we all last discussed. Wendy, you first. Oh, gosh. Um, last night, I watched Jackie Brown for the first time. The first time? 
Wow. Because <laughs> yeah. I was very angry at Pulp Fiction for a long time. Like, I didn't like that movie, and I avoided a lot of Tarantino things. But I watched Jackie Brown for the first time, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was my favorite Tarantino film. A lot of it's people the best thing say that. The best thing he's done, I think. Yeah, that's yeah, I how agree. I think I, that- I think it's his best as well, definitely. It, it's the least Tarantino of all his films, and I think because of that, it's probably his best movie. Yeah, like Robert De Niro was understated. I was very surprised. <laughs> he, he look, you know, I what I liked about De Niro in that film is he shows off his comedic chops um, by being understated. Yeah, which you haven't seen since like King of Comedy. Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I that's um that's my favorite Scorsese film. Nice. So yeah, yeah, I love the Pam Greer and Robert Forster dynamic. I really, really enjoyed it. So that was my. I'm glad I've now seen my favorite Tarantino. Nice, nice. You're going to go Can back I just, to, uh, uh, to oh, Sorry, sorry. Oh, no, no, I was going to say you're going to go back and listen <laughs> to the GGTMC and see why it all makes sense. Oh, oh, did they do an episode about oh, it? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. They, they, have, they have mad love for that film, absolutely. Oh, yeah. oh well, poop, i got to go back. Mm-hmm. Sorry, <laughs> Mr. Sticky. Um, I, I was just going to be controversial here and uh, state for the record that I really am not a fan of Tarantino. I have some real issues with him. Um, but I would agree that this is uh, easily his best film. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'm a Tarantino. Um, I'm a I'm a hater. I'll admit to it. I'm a Tarantino hater. I am fine. Come on, fine come, on. <laughs> come on, Bernie. You you you're just upset that you haven't seen it. You know, as many movies as he has. I mean, if you saw if you, if you saw as many movies as he had, then you'd be able to make movies too, right? Uh, yeah, well, maybe I would. I guess I could just cut and paste all the best bits out of other films, kind of like he does. And uh, yeah, I'm yeah. feeling I'm feeling so alone all of a sudden on this podcast because I, I, I unashamedly I love the man. Although I'll, I'll admit that there are two films that I don't like, and one is uh, Death Proof, and I don't really have a whole heap of love for Django Unchained. But otherwise, I, I am okay. a fan. I hated Death Proof. I really did not like Death Proof at all. I it, felt it, it ruined. It, yeah, it ruined my beloved Kurt Russell for me. I didn't like it. It was so <laughs> talky. It was so talky for no reason. I hated it. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe he went from Walt Disney to Death Proof. It just, you know, what would you <laughs> So, Mr. Sticky, what's been a highlight of uh, your last few weeks? Um, well, it's What did been, you buy at uh, Record Store Day? Oh, I was just showing Tim all my purchases, actually. Oh. I, um, I've sold about £300 worth of records on eBay over the last month, oh. um, and I spent close to £200 today on records. So um, well, you only sold those so you'd have the money to afford Record Store Day. Yeah, I was kind of clearing a bit of space as well, you know. But um, yeah, well, I, I bought a whole heap of stuff, but hardly any of it is Record Day stuff, believe it or not. Because uh, the one thing I wanted, uh, I couldn't find, which is the um, Pussy Galore Pussy Gold Five Thousand LP. Mm. Uh, that that was gone by the time I got there. But um, it'll show up on eBay within a day or two. Yeah. yeah, well, just between you, me, and the fence post, I do actually have a friend who works in a uh, a fairly well known record store in London, um, and uh, hopefully she might uh, might be able to procure me a copy of it. So, uh, nice. So I won't go without. But um, I could go on all day about records, but I won't. I'll tell you about a film I saw instead, mm-hmm. uh, which is called We Are the Best. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. No. It's uh, it's the latest film by the Swedish director uh, Lucas Moodison, who did Together and Lilia Forever. 
wow, that's a wall of silence coming back. We're <laughs> <laughs> waiting for you to elaborate. No, okay. Well, basically, um, We Are The Best is about three 13-year-old girls in Sweden in 1982 who decide to form a punk band. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, I heard and and it's great. It's just, it's funny. It's it's charming. It's life-affirming. It's got a really sort of naturalistic feel. Uh, you feel like maybe some of the, uh, well, actually quite a bit of it is probably improvised. Um, and it's just a really great, feel-good movie but without all that horrible sort of cloying sentiment or emotional manipulation that most feel-good movies seem to need to do you know so it's not an um, american but, film no very, yeah. <laughs> very much not an american film but it, it's absolutely wonderful i totally recommend that uh, you check it out if you've got any interest in um well if you're just a decent person i think you would enjoy this film we are so, together uh, yeah it was great if we, if we so can that's, procure that's probably this, you out, Morris. But if we can, if we can procure this before um, uh, before too long, then maybe we should talk about it on the podcast. I, I think we could. That'd be great. Mm. But how does I, it compare against the Fabulous Stains? How does this girl band compare against the Fabulous Stains? <laughs> yeah, can they play their instruments? Yeah. Uh, no, no, they can't. Uh, that's part oh. of the fun. No, they're all. I mean, they all look. They are literally twelve, thirteen years old, and uh, yeah, they're just. There's a great, uh, they, they sort of practice in this youth club uh, and it's set in 1982. So uh, you've got all these kind of slightly dodgy hangover from the 70s type guys uh, who are sort of coordinating the youth club and they, you know, with their leather jackets and moustaches and stuff. Uh, and they share a practice space with this teenage metal band called Iron Fist. <laughs> you know, what more do I have to say, man? They're awesome. They've got like the double denims and the bum fluff moustaches and stuff. Um it's great, yeah. It's just fantastic. Really, really great film. Uh, and I, I believe it's on Netflix US. I don't know whether oh. it actually got much of a, a release in the States at all. It's only just come out over here, but I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix US. So uh, so check it out if you can. Nice, nice. Uh, so was it, did you sit in the cinema or, or was it at a I film did, festival? Yeah, or? yeah. No, my, my wife and I have, have joined our, we've got a local little kind of independent art house cinema. Yep. Uh, and we're, we're now members of their kind of club and we get um, free tickets for previews and things like that. So in the last sort of, two weeks, I've seen about six films at the cinema, which is uh, just fantastic, actually. Really enjoying it. But uh, I won't bore you with all the other good stuff I've seen. So, But having said that, Calvary is fantastic if you get a chance to see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Locke, which is uh, Tom Hardy in a car for oh, 90 minutes. Great. It's yeah, it's great. It was really good. He's got a funny accent in it as well, so he's you know he's not letting the side down. Uh, but it's good, yeah, very good. So uh, I recommend all of those. Nice. And uh, I will shut up and uh, let you speak, Morris. No, no, no. It's up to Tim. Oh, Tim. Go Sorry, ahead. Tim. You go. You go. You go, Morris. Go ahead. Um, okay. Well, I put up a post, I think, on the Love That Album uh, Facebook page last night, describing my experience. I'm on a. Um, uh, music delivered by ex-comedians weekend. Uh, so last night I went to see Hugh Laurie and the Copper Bottom Band in uh, the Splendor, that is Melbourne's Palais Theatre. And uh, I'd had a conversation yesterday morning with um, with a friend saying that I was going to go see this concert and he went and said, um, oh, I'm not interested in that, he's an actor. And I, I just thought that was extremely sad because you know I judged... Hugh Laurie on the merits of his two albums, uh, Let Them Talk and Didn't It Rain. And the guy has got genuine chops and he's surrounded himself with an absolutely sterling band. 
And frankly, you know, if he's got the endorsement of Alan Toussaint, Dr. John and Irma Thomas, then I think, you know, anyone's doubts should definitely be put to rest. But he was funny. He, you know, he, the, the comedian in him hadn't quite gone away, but that was fine. He was uh, very engaging, very entertaining. Uh, but really, most importantly, um, uh, the band were great, and he was sort of doing a bit of a, a history of 20th century jazz and blues covering music from the likes of uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Nina Simone, uh, Dr. John, uh, Kansas Joe McCoy, and that's just off the top of my head who I can remember. Uh, just, yeah, really wonderful, engaging uh, performer. He dances like a praying mantis. Um, everyone in the band had a moment to shine. Uh, you know, very generous as a band leader. Uh, had these two great backup singers, uh, Gene McLean and Gabby, uh, Gabby Romero, I think. And, um, they, they had uh, quite a few, uh, solo singing moments and just, yeah, really engaged the audience to a, to a great degree. I, I'm sure that if anyone did go into, uh, the theatre with, their only knowledge of him as being you know, the lead actor in house. I think by the end of the night, they were converted to him as a, a bona fide uh, musician. So yeah, that was great. And tonight, going to a local club to see uh, Adrian Edmondson and the Bad Shepherds. Um, so get get to hear uh, all these um, all these old uh, songs. You know, London Calling and I Fought the Law and. Uh, oh, Gosh, what else? I, I think he does uh, Shipbuilding by Elvis Costello. Um, oh, wait. But wait. all, all going to be done in a, uh, a in a folky, bluegrassy sort of vein. So that that's really, really very exciting. But if we're really lucky, he'll also do... I don't know if uh, any of you have seen any of the YouTube clips. He does um, uh, a, a one-minute interpretation of Steel Eye Spans all around my hat, uh, which um, when you wait for the punchline, it's, it's hysterical. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, and also continuing on in this vein, about a week or so ago, I went and I couldn't resist. I went out and bought Steve Martin and the uh, Kenyan Rangers live album. And uh, that comes with a live DVD. And yeah, he really can't decide whether he wants to be a stand-up comedian or a musician because he's doing a bit of both. But it's immensely enjoyable. So um, there you go. That's uh, that's my musical contribution. So all right, nice. I've done, done nice. my dash. Tim? Oh. All right, I'm just trying to get my head together here. Uh, yesterday, I went and saw a movie in the theater. Um, the Cinematheque here, they've uh, been doing a retrospect on uh, American director Bud Bedecker. Oh, neat. And Bedecker is an old uh, Western director. So I went and saw the classic Ride Lonesome. Right. Yeah. I think I might have watched that. that um, Terry Frost is a big rep for that. So uh, I watched that about a year or two ago. Randolph Scott, you know, and my man Lee Van Cleef and early Jim Coburn. It's uh, it's funny because, you know, have you guys all seen The Proposition? Yes. It's, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed oh, to say I haven't. Uh, it's, I almost the, it's almost the kind of... Uh, I don't know, I guess you could say the the groundwork for the proposition, kind of the same idea. No, it was really nice to see uh, a Western on the big screen again, because, you know, like in this day and age, everybody goes on about people like uh, Terrence Malick and how, you know, stunning he can really uh, capture landscape, you know, but I mean, 
we we forget i think sometimes that back in the day you know there was a lot of things that were shot and there was just amazing backdrops you know like a lot of the old westerns like just incredible to see that on the big screen and uh as far as music wise i was just telling bernie off air that uh i've been really big in this group called the master musicians of bukaki um, <laughs> they're uh kind of an experimental collective out of the pacific northwest who kind of uh play a, a kind of a psychedelic version of middle eastern music mixed with a little bit of electronic experimental stuff and uh they kind of poke fun. There's a lot of uh, a lot of bands now. Like for example, for years and years, you know, everybody followed the Grateful Dead and said the Dead were a cult. And there's all this kind of ephemera and stuff that you have to know when you follow the Dead. Well, they kind of do that type of thing, but they're poking fun at it, taking the piss with it, you know, by obscuring their faces and they're all coming out wearing like robes and you know, kind of. Uh, wearing Bedouin clothes and that type of thing. So they're all, they're having fun with it, but at the same time, they're really amazing musicians and the music they play is just absolutely fantastic. You know, at least to me it is. And, you know, I think it's great seeing people that are so uh, competent and talented, but yet at the same time, not taking themselves so seriously. You know, they, they, it, it's like you get bands like Arcade Fire, who kind of go and disappear up their own ass, or or like uh, or what is it? Godspeed, you black emperor. You know where there's just so much pretense involved with with what they do, and then you get these guys that are just kind of like you know, yeah, we're kind of obscuring ourselves because we're not important, but the music that we play is. Wasn't well, that kind and, of like the residents? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's just it. The residents are the grandfathers of that. And that's what I loved about the residents. And I've always loved about the residents is everyone always said, well, they were just kind of a visual shtick, you know, and I said, no, 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 no. Far from it. I said that, you know, they were taking, eliminating the human element to kind of, you know, present more focus on what they were doing. Yeah, there's a, there's a, of course, there's a visual element to the residents, and there always has been, but they were just kind of pulling themselves out of the picture and saying, look, who we are doesn't fucking matter. It's what we're doing. And that's what I've always been attracted to is musicians who are more into that as opposed to, uh, you know, themselves. It's anyway. all about music. Yeah, it's all about music. It should music. always be about the music and nothing else, I think. So Maybe we ought to ban film clips. <laughs> no, saying that it should be all about the music and nothing else is eliminating the element of style. Nah, I don't know. There's style over music, and I mean, you know. I don't I know. Mean, maybe I'm, not, I'm being a little broad, but uh, yeah, substance over style. There's nothing wrong with the visual as long as it's in balance with what they're doing. I mean, you know, that's that's the thing. I mean, as as much as I hate to say it, I mean, initially, like, uh, what's her face, uh, Lady Gaga, you know. I mean, initially there was kind of a balance between what she was doing musically and her, her visual aesthetic. and But then it gets to the point now where it's just kind of like, you know, I'm wearing a carrot hat. Look at me. Look at me. It's like, you know, okay, yeah. But, but you know, what goes along with that carrot hat? Well, um, you know, that's that. Well, she, uh, I've got a lot of time for Lady Gaga. I mean, I don't particularly like her music, but the fact that she uh, not only sampled Sun Ra, but credited him as part of the uh, the songwriting team on one of her songs. Oh, yeah. You, you know, you can't kind of knock that, can you? So. No, no. 
more than what Led Zeppelin did, hey? Oh, don't even <laughs> no, go there. Don't I even told you my Led Zeppelin story, didn't I? I'm sure. Oh, no, please. <laughs> Have I not? I don't think so. My, my Robert Plant story? No, share. Okay, I'll go through this quickly. Um, basically, I, I work in a comic book store, uh, and downstairs, it's, it's on the top floor of a two-story building, uh, and the ground floor... Uh, is a, or used to be a record shop. It's now a vintage clothing shop. Uh, but many moons ago, uh, I, I, was, I got into work early, uh, so I had to go through the ground floor and up to the second floor where the record uh, comic shop is. Uh, and I was kind of, you know, getting ready for the day up there, and I hear noise downstairs. So I went down to check it out, see what was going on. Uh, and when I'd come in the, the shop, I'd left the front door open. Uh, not like open, open, but on the latch. Anyway, there was some guy in there, and he was kind of peeking into the window, trying to see what this record that was hanging up in the window was. Uh, and so I walked towards him, and I was like, sorry, mate, we're not open yet, you can't come in. Uh, and as I was getting closer and closer to him, I realised it was Robert Plant. Oh, holy fuck. Uh, and he said, uh, oh, I, I just wanted to check this uh, record out in the window. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, you'll have to come back later, we're not open yet. <laughs> and I threw him out. Yes. And uh, when I'd done that, I just kind of melted, you know. I was like, fuck, I just threw a plan out of the shop. Uh, and anyway, when, when uh, the guy who owned the record shop came in a bit later and opened up, and then Robert Plant came back, apparently, and bought this record that he was looking at, and uh, Nasher was the name of the guy who owned the record shop. He told Robert Plant that uh, the guy upstairs uh, was feeling really embarrassed for throwing him out of the shop. But, uh, you know, uh, so what? He's fucking Robert Plant. Doesn't mean he can go into a shop when it's closed and do what he wants, does it? Damn right. Bernie, you're reminding me of, uh, uh, what's his name there? Uh, Harry, uh, oh, what's his name? The comedian. Uh, well, Harry Enfield, no? Enfield, you know. Oi, Robert Plant, you think you can come into any record store at any time and buy it? I'd say, hey, Robert, no, not on my watch, son. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah it's but just hang, like hang when on, Oprah accused. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go on, go on. I'm saying it's just like when Oprah accused those people of racism because they wouldn't allow her. They, they wouldn't <laughs> open up the shop for her in Paris when it was closed. Yeah. It was plantism on my part. I'm a plantist. I'll admit it. Yeah, but on the other hand, <laughs> his long you... curly locks and his little beard. Fucking hell. Yeah, exactly. You'd have quite had. I've got to be honest. I, I I was so pleased with myself because as soon as I recognised it was Robert Plant, I just I almost went, "Oh my gosh, you're Robert Plant! I really like Led Zeppelin." But I thought, you no, I'm in. Be strong. You should have said to him, "What what is it with all you old cunts trying to look like Robert Plant?" Yeah. <laughs> Robert, I heard that I heard that you were in a band before before you played with Alison Krauss. Is it true? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, I love the Honey Drippers. Yeah. Have you done anything else? <laughs> Can there be a reunion? I think it was before uh, he did the thing with Alison Krauss. Actually, this is going back probably about ten years now. So. Uh, <laughs> Quite wild, that would have been funny, man. I was just thinking, you know, if you had opened the door, Bernie, you should have said, "Come with me <laughs> <laughs> to the sea." You, you, would, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have kicked out your mate Andy Partridge, though, would you? Oh no, no, Andy Partridge can shop wherever the hell he wants any day. But you I know, Andy Partridge. You know, Bernie and Andy are like this tight, Wendy. Oh, uh, yeah, no, we're, we're buddies. He's been in my shop a few times, yeah. Oh, uh, my gosh. 
but he's he has got the uh you know he's polite enough that he will come in during opening hours he won't come in when the shop's fucking closed so <laughs> but strangely but yeah, enough he, ha- he hasn't been in. he hasn't been back to the shop since you asked him to come and love that album though has he uh unfortunately not no right. I, think I might have scared him off morris yeah yeah that's a that's a problem isn't it <laughs> but oh. last time i saw him he, he did show me how to do uh, a dalek impression <laughs> He told me how to do it, and he, he kind of showed me, and it was pretty good, actually. I won't try you know, to beat it. You know who I always thought did a pretty good dialect impression? Yoko Ono. Exterminate! Exterminate! We all make mistakes, said the dialect climbing off the dustbin. <laughs> little, little Jasper character. Said John Lennon. <laughs> said, well, said Yoko Ono, frankly. Oh, that's another controversial thing there. Uh-oh. Hey, let's not go there. Let's not go there. Yeah. Hey, listen. Um, I think we're here. We're, we're we're here to talk music films. So what we're going to do is take a, a quick break, and then come back and talk about 1980/81, depending whether you want to talk about the creation or the release Babylon. of the Franco Rosso film Babylon. We'll be back shortly. <laughs> This is the ghost of the King of Comics, Jack Kirby. When I'm not haunting Stan Lee, I'm listening to my favorite comic book podcast, Double Page Spread. Each week, Wendy Freeman talks to creators like Cullen Bunn, Mark Wade, Evan Dorkin, and more. She is one cool dame who knows a lot about comics. So when I'm at my drawn board in heaven cranking out fourth world pages, I'm listening to Double Page Spread. Available on iTunes, Libsyn, and the Stitcher Network. Trick or Treat Radio is a phantasmagorical spin kick straight through the heart of pop culture, navigated by the Deadites. We are the world's greatest electroshock band, we destroy monsters, we drink booze, and we win championship belts. If you're not listening to Trick or Treat Radio, here's a taste of what you've been missing. There's three guarantees in life, what are they? Death, taxes, and Trick or Treat Radio every Friday morning. This is one of the most convoluted movies I've ever seen in my life. I'm fucking trying, man. Hi, hi, hi. Oh, yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, yeah. It's like you took a shit on a pile of shit. But you shit on him right. for liking what he likes. Yeah, well, it's my job. This podcast is now banned in Germany. <laughs> it's me, Giovanni Lombardo Redici. Shut up. I call bullshit. I demand someone to bring me the face of Lindsay Lohan. If I had genitals, I would definitely bang her. Oh, wait. Is she a great big fan person? You just hit the jackpot. This is a weird movie, huh? It had action. It had suspense. It had great characters. It had great acting. I'm going to strangle you with my jockey shorts. I don't like mobster movies. All right, well, here's my take. You're a sick fuck. Thank you. Now shut the fuck up and let me talk. Have you ever seen 2001? The box, right? The box and the monkey. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and trickortreatradio.com. Arrivederci, douchebags. We're back. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode four. And uh, I'm very, very excited to be talking about this film that uh, Mr. Bernard Stickwell of the uh, Bath Stickwell family has uh, chosen. This is a 1980s 
Babylon, directed by one Franco Rosso. So, uh, Bernie, you chose it. You have the floor. You start off. Uh, okay. Um, I think I first saw this probably four or five years ago. Um, now, apparently, it, it pretty much vanished without trace after it uh, was in cinema. So, I don't know if it ever got a video release. Um, but it showed up again on DVD, as I say, four or five years ago. And I read a few uh reviews uh, various places thought it sounded interesting um now i will say uh as we go into this i gotta admit i'm not a huge reggae fan uh which might seem kind of odd considering that's what this is all about um but it's um it paints a really interesting picture of a certain time and place in, uh, in uk history uh, and um i find it appealing because of that really so uh so yeah, um, directed by a guy called Franco Rosso, who was uh, apparently an Italian immigrant, uh, and I think he lived in the same kind of area as the movie is set, which is uh, Brixton in London. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and so I think uh, he felt that he was, uh, you know, he had a, a kind of sympathy with the, uh, you know, the kind of Jamaican people who were immigrants and the, the kind of. Um, you know the uh, the trials and tribulations that they faced being being immigrants. You know, well, so, that's, um, it's actually already an interesting point that you raise because there's one point in the film which I'm sure we'll touch more on, which uh, I mean, really, the, the the main characters of the film are not immigrants; they're already, I think, second generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. They're the first. Uh, well, yeah, probably the first generation to uh, you know of Jamaicans born in the UK right so um, yeah it's uh, you know the UK is I mean what there's uh, again there's a scene we'll probably get to a little bit later when uh, someone says get out of my country mm. yes, and, yes. Uh, you know Beefy uh, Beefy says this is my fucking country that's right but uh, yeah no it's definitely uh, yeah an interesting uh, an interesting period so, and of course this was um, sorry Morris no 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 go on go on I was going to say, this was around the time as well. I mean, um, it actually happened just after the film was released, I believe. But the, uh, the Brixton riots uh, were, you know, obviously a fairly notorious yep. uh, happening over here in the UK at the time. And, um, you know, it's the same with whenever you uh, you stick a whole bunch of uh, people in an area where they're poor, they don't have uh, much in the way of, uh, not necessarily hope, but they don't have, you know, many options. They don't have much money. And uh, when you throw, you know, kind of uh, the racial thing into the mix as well, um, you know, these things happen, unfortunately. And frankly, uh, you know, Maggie Thatcher and her government were uh, a bunch of scum who um, didn't do anything to help matters. And uh, the police force were uh, were pretty shitty about the whole thing as well. So it was it was kind of a powder keg where it to happen. So, yep. um, I was sort of you know. convinced like, when I watched the film until I sort of like you know looked online and saw what the timeline was. I thought that this film might have been made after the fact of the Brixton riots, and it was showing well this is what led to it. But yeah, uh, but I was really surprised to see that no, this was about six to twelve months before uh, the Brixton riots, and it, 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 I mean in in retrospect, you know, in, in hindsight, you can sort of see oh wow, really this was. Uh, it, it, it was yeah. just a powder keg waiting to happen. Right? Yeah, it was. It was just, you know, it was inevitable something was going to happen. It's uh, apparently uh, particularly the end of the film, which, uh, again, 
won't get to just yet, but that apparently was inspired by an, uh, an event in London in, uh, I think, 74, 75? Um, where again, just a whole bunch of police raided uh, a club where nothing particularly was going on other than, you know, uh, Jamaican and Afro-Caribbean people were um, listening to music. And, uh, you know, police came in, raided, kicked the shit out of a whole bunch of people. Well, and, let's, uh, there you let's go. talk a little bit about the, the basic plot of the film and yeah, sure. uh, the, yeah. the, the politics of the time. So, I mean, it's... it's uh, you know, the basic plot of the film is it tells a few days, I guess, in the life of um, uh, this character called Blue, played by Brinsley Ford, who's also the lead singer of uh, reggae group uh, Aswad. Uh, his, uh, his passion is being part of his sound system crew, uh, which they're called the Itel Lions. But, uh, you know, during the day, Blue works as a car mechanic for a, a very racist garage owner played by Mel Smith. I mean, I, I really was not prepared to see him. You know, I, I had this picture in my mind, you know, of uh, uh, not the nine o'clock news and to see him play yeah. you know, this nasty garage mechanic, uh, this nasty garage owner just, um, you know, was really threw me for a six. But he did, he did his role really well. Uh, so, you know, yeah, Tim and I were talking about that earlier. It was kind of odd to see him in that role. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. That was a hell of a haircut you had as well. It was a lack of haircut, I guess. <laughs> well, well that, that's how we always looked in Not the Nine O'Clock News, really. You sort of like that. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Pulled up yeah. front, long hair in the back. Um, so, yeah, Blue has to contend with, uh, you know, all the inherent bigotry of, uh, of uh, you know, the Mel Smith character. But I, I see. It's, it's just basically, I, I guess. Uh, a few days in the life of, and, and well, it's, the, the uh, it's leading up that... to uh, it's leading up to uh, a, a sound system clash, isn't it? Right. Where right. the Itel Lions are going to be going up against the uh, God, what are they called Shaka, is it? Yep. The Shaka system, which, which was a real life uh, sound system crew. Yes. Yeah. So is yeah. this like a battle of the bands? So this is the equivalent. It's that kind of thing. It, it's funny enough. I've, I've just been reading a book uh, about uh, hip hop in the uh, in the seventies in you know the Bronx and so on. Yeah, I was going to say it's that kind of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, you know rival sound systems just having a battle right. by uh, playing music as loud as possible and you know kind of toasting over the top of it. Right. They'd so. have these neighborhoods, neighborhood block parties, you know, in basically like uh, basketball courts or That's like. Right, or wherever they wherever they could, they try to find like a power source and try to snake some power off of you know like telephone lines or whatever wherever they could you know and that's that was kind of like you know as, as funny as it sounds like you were talking about you know the violence of Brixton and everything. This was one thing that actually was kind of a uh, a deterrent to violence. Yeah, well, it was, it was something else to focus on, wasn't it? You know, it right, but it also settled kind of uh, differences. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, if you were the more, if you were the more established or the more talented DJ, or you were spinning the better stuff, then everybody said, okay, you know, you're the top now. There's no argument because you know the, it was the the crowds that actually the audience that actually dictated you know who was on top it wasn't you know you're kind of boasting it was actually put up or shut up where you know you you had to compete with others it was interesting it was interesting to see in the film like uh, when we get to that scene at the end the two crews definitely have their own set of fans they have their own uh, crews uh, who, who follow them around and yeah it, it, was, it was really interesting also it, it, like in preparation for um talking about this i also watched uh, I, I mentioned 
to you, Bernie. Um, or actually, no, I might have put on the on the Facebook page in general that there was a, a documentary, one of the fantastic series of BBC Four documentaries. Uh, yes. Whatever, yeah. Britannia. So this is Reggae Britannia. And I think that that documentary made the point that these uh, sound system crews came up as a result of radio at the time, just not taking reggae music seriously. Yeah, yeah. And then the, within the community, there was also the snobbish element of, um, oh, that's British reggae. Oh, we don't want to listen to that. We want the, we want the reggae from, from the heart, from the source of Jamaica. So there was, there was all sorts of things going on. Well, one thing, too, I wanted to add, and you and I have talked about it before, Morris, is this idea that uh, pirate radio was actually a big part of it at that time, too, because, you know, there was an English channel. There was, you know, broadcasts of a lot of heavy dub and stuff like there is, you know, that was another way that the music got out there. Right. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, I think that's that kind of thing still goes on to a certain extent. I mean, it, it's all kind of like grime and stuff like that these days, but... Uh, uh, you know, certainly around areas of London, you know, these pirate stations still crop up, I believe. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, that they're, they're servicing a need, they're plugging a gap there for communities and people who right. are getting hurt, uh, well, they want somewhere else, you know. Right. And I think that you know, there's a real parallel between three, like three, three kind of scenes, like you know. Bernie, you mentioned, you know, the hip-hop, American hip-hop scene, the origins of hip-hop, you know, Sugar Hill and, you know, the, the mid to late 70s and that. And But also, I think, you know, that the whole uh, American, I mean, sorry, uh, British uh, two-tone and mod scene mm-hmm. was also very similar to this. Whereas, you know, it was kind of like, you know, records that were spun in like a church basement or a community center and... It was kind of, you know, an organic scene that was kind of not being uh, provided for by general society, but they they basically found their own kind of uh, way to tap the source, you know, and uh, kind of keep it thriving. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could maybe make the comparison to the, the kind of northern soul thing as well, in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think there was a lot of crossover between them because, I mean, you know. I knew, like, you know, there was, when I was in high school in the early 80s, like, there was friends of mine that were mods, and uh, a lot of them, you know, did get into the reggae, too. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it that kind of period, yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the punk thing as well, you know, punk and reggae, yeah. Uh, you know, at first it might not seem like a particularly, uh, you know, compatible mix, but that, that kind of thing happened quite a lot, you know? Well, it, it was interesting because um, in, in that Reggae Britannia docu- documentary, they um, have an interview with the name of the lead singer of uh, punk group The Slits and Harry Up yeah Harry Up yeah Harry Up maybe it wasn't her but it, it was a member of The Slits and she was saying how um, you know they they all loved reggae and they got uh, Dennis Bovell who is the main uh, composer for, for yeah. the, uh, the music that we hear in Babylon to um, produce uh, one of their albums and they just said she said that what they really dug about reggae music was the space that it provided it taught them you know you don't have to fill everything up they liked the fact that they weren't trying to be raucous and 
fill and try to fill absolutely every space and they learnt a lot from them in that respect so um, yeah I thought, I thought that was an interesting take on it yeah yeah totally so let's yeah. um, let's talk about some of the themes of, of the film so obviously you know there's the, on the surface there's the main idea about um, the, uh, the the cruise battle of the battle of the cruise competition towards the end but I guess there's there's other uh, themes going on here. So you know, Blue is our uh, central point of reference, and he's got so many contrasts. So there's the idea of uh, his contrast as um, uh, a second generation uh, Jamaican uh, a Jamaican uh, person who's like uh, living in living in London. So he's got. The problem of, of a teenager, so he's got this problem with his with his parents, uh, you know, which is like any teenager growing up might have uh, problems with their folks, and so he's rebelling against that. But he's also got problems against wider London society. So there's there's the Mrs. Pepperpot who calls him a git uh, while he's trying to. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was hysterical. Uh, while he's uh, trying to chase his brother, trying to get into school, but there's there's all these. Oh, what's no? What does she call him? Um, she a bleeding dick. No, no, him. no. She calls him. Oh, bleeding kid. Oh, was dead. Oh, okay. I wrote dick down instead. Oh, no, but, come so. on. You surely should have picked that up. <laughs> and dick is. You know, a lot of it uh, reminded me of Quadrophenia. That's sort of that that whole thing of like. This. The teenagers having to rebel against like the poverty and the working class nature where they're growing up. You know, I'd, I'd gone and written that very earlier. Yeah. Uh, the, the blue character is very much like Jimmy the Mod. He doesn't quite know where he fits in. Right, exactly. That's how I felt. Yeah, I'd have to uh, agree with you guys completely, as I felt that there was a real comparison between the two. And you know, we will see that you know it really adds. There, there are uh, a lot of parallels between two, uh, both films, Quadrophenia and Babylon. You know, and uh, as we go on, we'll we'll see it becomes more apparent. Right. Um, so th th I've got written down here that there are a couple of uh, crucial scenes that sort of show the contrast between the older generation that um, Blue's parents represent and the wider English society that doesn't tolerate uh, a counterculture or, or, or different ethnicity. So, you know, there's, first of all, you know, the scene where Blue is being told off by his father and his father just appears to be grateful to be living the British dream or just being allowed to be there. To him, there is no wall waiting to be fought with white society. Though, you know, the surprising thing is as a first generation immigrant, he surely would have faced that, faced some level of intolerance. But I think he just wants to keep his head down, go to work and not have to worry about living his own identity. He wants to live the British dream. And same for his mother, although his mother really is more protective of Blue. And I think there's a thing with that where, you know, um, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it, but I think this idea that, you know, because Blue is a second generation, he's got a lot more liberties than his father had. And yeah, so, absolutely. Be yeah. and because, because he has a lot more liberties, you know, he can actually speak up for his interests and uh, and for his feelings, you know. I mean, like, like for example, you know, the bit in the uh, garage where, you know, he's going up against Smith and, you know, and, and Smith's saying, you got a bit too much of the mouth, boy. You know, I mean, like his father would never have said that. Whereas Blue, though, but Blue is saying, look, you know, I got to find my position in life. I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to say what I'm going to say and I feel what I feel. So I think, I think, you know, as you go on, 
through generations, it becomes more diluted. It becomes it becomes more you know uh, more about the the individual instead of the struggle. You know, like I mean, they don't see that struggle because right. they've never they were never raised in it. Yeah. Although, mind you, I guess there's that scene late in the film where um, Blue stumbles on that Rastafarian service, and right. I think yeah. he takes more of the collective as well. While you know this um, the the minister is saying you know they say welcome. Uh, welcome to our community. You are part of that. Have a spliff, and you you are part of us. So he sees more of the the community that he could be part of, as well as just trying to take his own liberties. Yeah, you kind of get the impression he doesn't really feel that he's part of that, though. That you get the impression it's not for him, don't you? No, I'm not completely sure about that. He he looks into it, and I think he finds it all a bit bewildering. But yeah. I don't think he I don't think he rejects it. I don't think he thinks this is oh, not for no, me. But... I think he's just a bit sort of feeling, wow, this is part of who I am about, but I've never really looked at it like this. I don't know, that's just the impression I got anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. But coming, I, I want to come back to yeah, the point that you'd already raised, Bernie, once again, in, in relation to the contrast that I already, already mentioned between Blue and his father, but there's also uh, the contrast between him and he, and you know, the wider English society. So, you know, they're, when the Italians crew are in their, uh, in their garage and they're playing, they're spinning this yeah, new record yeah. in, in the lockup which, funnily enough, in a little in-joke, is an Aswad record. And, uh, uh, Blue is a member of Aswad, but you know, yeah. we don't know that. Uh, and uh, we, we get uh, Mrs. English Society coming down and saying, Oi, you clerks, stop that noise that you're doing. You're doing that every bleeding night. And you ought to go back to wherever you came from. And, and Beefy, who's a second-generation Briton, goes and says, um, Oh, that's right. She, she says, This country used to be so wonderful. This place used to be so wonderful wonderful before you got here and beefy pipes up and says this is my fucking country lady and it was always a fucking dump yeah, right. yeah. Uh, i wanted I you know why he's totally right i wanted to say too like the contrast between blue and beefy whereas blue blue seems like the guy who's more level-headed and beefy's like the firecracker right because like yeah he's there's, the there's, emotional response kind of guy isn't he right exactly he's kind of like the you know the period whereas you know blue is kind of like the guy who's just trying to kind of you know keep his head above the water and just you know try to be level or look at both sides you know i mean like for example you know his mother wants his brother to go to school and wants him to mind his brother and then you know he he does it he tries but then he also says at the same time if he doesn't want to go to school you can't make him right so i mean you know he, he looks at both sides of the things whereas beefy's just like that Ugh! you know like there's a scene yeah. where they're throwing the, the the white assholes are throwing milk bottles at him and beefy just comes right out with that knife and everybody's like yeah, beefy, yeah. You, know, like, you know what are you doing you know like don't, don't buy into it, you know? I was going to say, my, my question to you is, do you think that uh, those uh, people who are throwing the milk bottles, I mean, there's an inference that they might be associated with the National Front, but do you think, Bernie, do you think that they were affiliated with the National Front or they were just representative, general, older generation I, British society? I think um, I think they were just representative of that older generation. I mean, it's, you know, this is 1980 and in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long ago. But you know, I was I was ten years old when this film came out, and I, you know I can remember I can remember it being like that. I can remember perfectly lovely people 
we would then start coming out with kind of racist bullshit because it's you know it's what they were brought up with i guess in a, in a way they didn't know any better right so you know that that's a that's that a distrust danger. and that fear just you know it, it was kind of you know it was uh, it was there hardwired into them you know so you know well, you know doesn't excuse it obviously but no but you're right though because i mean you know it, it's funny how uh, things, you know, like you said, hardwired into 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 uh, people. You know, I remember being a kid, and uh, you know, my grandfather getting these uh, nuts. They're called filberts. Oh, uh, filberts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my grandfather, he, he, Bernie's laughing because he knows well, what I'm There's a say. nickname for those. Yes. Right. There's a nickname. I, for I just, those. I don't, I don't know where you're going with this. I'm just laughing at the mention of the word nuts. That's all. Filberts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Filberts are known as uh, Nick Toes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's a nickname for them. And then, you know, the other thing was, too, was, you know, like when I was a kid, we used to get candies, and my mom used to say, oh, I love the black babies. And I'd say, yeah. black babies? What are you talking about? Well, I love black babies. And I'm like, oh, gee. You know, now I think about it, it's embarrassing. But, you know, <laughs> at the time... Just, you yeah, know, culturally, we hadn't moved ahead, and, you know... You, you look at TV from that kind of period. Well, you, you, we're looking at this film, and it's just you know this doesn't over exaggerate how things were at all. You know, it's this is how no, it was. Right. It really was uh, less enlightened times. You know. Mm -hmm. But 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 you know what? Also, I think that it 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 really is kind of funny because it's like I don't know I don't know how this if this is going to make sense, but I find that when when there's kind of social constraint, that a lot of things become stronger. You know, like when, when society is, you know, it, the more repressive society is sometimes, the more subculture becomes stronger, the more subculture becomes more united. And I find that, you know, like at that time, you know, with, with the, you know, the poor economics and the, and the Thatcherism and, you know, and the racism and everything else, they had no choice but to really bond and to really, you know, unify, like to get it together for yeah. themselves because that's all they had. Whereas today, you know, because we, you know, we are, we're like, ah, oh, we're, we're above this, we're above that, we don't do that anymore, we don't do this anymore, and no one really feels like there's, you know, a need to kind of, you know, uh, bond together like that, because, you know, it, you know, I don't, I don't know, do you understand kind of what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I think you got a totally valid point there, definitely. Yeah, because, I mean, they felt like they were in such a, such a petri dish, I guess, so to speak, or put in there because of the social conditions of the time yeah. that... They had to thrive. So I was going to ask Wendy, you've been a, a bit quiet. What what were your thoughts on the film? Oh, gosh. First of all, I had such a, had such a hard time following this film. I didn't appreciate a lot of what they were saying. I was going to mention at some point now, how did everyone get on with the, the sort of Jamaican patois? Because it's... Bombay man. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and I found myself kind of like drifting off during it. You know, like it wasn't... Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it was a good film. <laughs> what about the music, Wendy? Did you like the music? Oh yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I like Desmond Decker. I like a lot of reggae stuff, you know. But it just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't my particular bag. But yeah, once again, I mean, I felt like I've seen this sort of disenfranchisement uh, of teenagers and in, in, you know, racism and, and bad society. I feel like as though like I've seen it in a number of other movies. 
I felt like it wasn't anything fresh, but I mean, obviously it's not 1980, so, you know. It's, but, uh, it's a universal thing, I guess. Yes, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, you see it in, you see it in, obviously, like, all the, uh, all the movies about South Central LA, and you see it in, you know, all these movies about, uh, you know, young, young black people being impoverished and, and, and having, you know, all these all these uh, insurmountable odds. Yeah. But Attack the Block. Attack the Block is kind of like that too. With well, that, that's, that, that's the thing is, you know, it's not that much different these days, you know. Uh, you know, um, Jamaican people, Afro-Caribbean, you know, they still are generally herded into, uh, you know, kind of big tower blocks in sort of skanky areas where there's still a lot of poverty, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of crime. Things haven't changed that much, you know, we're, uh, we'd like to think maybe they have, we'd like to think we're all a bit more tolerant and less racist than uh, things were 30, 40 years ago, but um, I don't know, I think maybe we're just better at covering it up now, you know, I don't know, that's my thought for the day. Okay. <laughs> I, I was, one thing I wanted to talk about, oh, so actually, so I come back to your point, Wendy, about um, it being a bit hard to understand, I watched it twice, and <laughs> I, I found after, well, I, I, the first time around, I found that really I was able to get the gist, but the second time around, I was actually able to get the dialogue, uh, and in between the two oh, things, I watched that Reggae Britannia film, so it all, it all, and little things made sense, so the scene in Fat Larry's office, all of a sudden came, made a whole lot of sense, they were going in there to get his tunes for the competition, the first time around, I didn't pick up on that. Uh, oh, alright. They, they, uh, they you know, said, oh, I'll give you this. Uh, I'll give you this cracking tune and, and they said, right, well, we'll offer you some money, we'll offer you some ganja. And he says, right, oh, I want your chain as well from around your neck. But it was all, they were going to give him this. And that tune that they play in the lockup is the tune that they've gone and given him. You know, actually coming back to the first time we recorded together for actually for Silver and Gold, the scene where they first play the, the song Warrior Charge, while they're all sort of dancing around the locker reminded me so much of that scene and that thing you do where the Oneeders hear their song on the radio for the first time. It's all just so very, very exciting for them and it's just this unbridled joy. I mean, the, the times are so tough for the Jamaican community otherwise, but they find their joy. Uh, they, you've already gone and said that you know they, they all had to bond together, but this particular crew, this subset, they've gone and bonded together over the music and over this song, and they're dancing around, and they're so happy to be hearing, yep, this is a song that's going to win them the, the battle of the sound system. So it's just, I don't know, I, not there's no other way that you compare this film to that thing you do, but that particular scene did. Can I, can I say something, one thing too, though, like you talk about sound systems all right i have i have no sympathy whatsoever for all the little bitches today that whine about having to carry their laptops to dj gigs and their <laughs> their, their little ipods and hey i'm a drummer i will never i will never give those people credit for having to <laughs> for, for jack i mean when you see these guys hauling what looks like to be about the size of a fucking piano down the stairs, you know what I mean? They, you know, like, these guys, these guys are not only DJs; they're roadies. Yes. I mean, like these guys are hauling gear. You know. Really? Are people and, complaining and, about having to carry a laptop to a gig? This is so. Yeah. No, but nobody, nobody was crying about, you know, I'm just saying like DJs today, like, you know, whatever they call this EDM shit, you know, and and they're just like, hi, oh, I, I gotta carry my iPod and I got six terabyte hard drives I gotta take to the show. And blah, blah. It's like, 
holy shit, man. You try hauling like, you know, like six, you know, 600 watt speakers or whatever, you know, you try hauling like, you know, subwoofers, like all that stuff that they were carrying. Like in that film, it's insane. And not only that, like they jury rig, like uh, when there's the bit when they kind of uh, heist the speakers from the school. Nice, yes, that's right. Yeah, and then, and then buddies, buddies trying to wire them up and get them all set up. You know, I mean, like they they do you know, by hook or by crook. They try to do what they do. You know, and it's like there's something to be said for that. And you know, I mean, that that goes back to like the, like I was saying earlier, like Bernie was mentioning, you know, New York hip hop and that where. You know, some of these guys would try to, like, actually climb up telephone poles or try to find any outlets that they could in the schoolyard to get extra power. You know, like, that's that's really what they did. These guys were insane, some of them. Right. I wanted to um, bring in a little bit about the Brixton riots. So this is post the film, but this is what makes the film all, all the more powerful watching in hindsight because, you know, you've already gone and mentioned the specific incident of the, um, uh, of the police raiding the sound system competition but there was a thing that the uh, documentary had made uh, apparent which we see in the film were called the sus laws i can't remember did they actually mention the word sus laws in the film itself i don't know if they don't think they do but it's um it's it's stop and search isn't it basically yeah 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 and um that just basically gave police at the time the power to stop anyone that they fancied just for the for the sake of it and yep. at one point in the film, Blue is chased by police and, and had the shit kicked out of him by police officers just because they fancy that, you know, well, he's, he's out and about and he's probably going to create some mischief. Uh, yeah, no, I think he, uh, you know, like you say, they chase him down, kick the shit out of him, take him down the station. I think that scene where um, he's, he's being driven in the back of the police car and he's kind of driving through the streets and it's all... Mm. You know, there's rubble and fires, and it's all looking really shitty and burnt out and bombed. That, that's a pretty accurate reflection of uh, Thatcher's Britain in 1980. That kind of that sums oh, yeah. it up pretty well, really. Right. But yeah, you know, he goes home and uh, he has to show up in court later because uh, you know he's been charged with I don't know what has he been charged with. He's just been beaten up by some uh, by some pigs. Get, and, get, uh, he's get, got to go to court for it. He's charged with getting in the way of their uh, hobnail boots. Yeah, <laughs> he's charged with bleeding on their fists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember very vividly watching on the TV news. I think I might have been about fourteen or fifteen at the time, and seeing it a half a world away. You know, in in London, these. Uh, yeah. Police cars being burnt and you know, shops being destroyed, right. and wondering what the hell was all that about. And I, you know, I really it took till researching for the film that I sort of you know discovered what it was all about. You know, the the, the sus laws and the you know, the community apparently like a, only a month before the riots had held a uh, a peaceful march over to Hyde Park because they right, thought yeah. that there, there was um, there was a Jamaican teenager I think who'd been beaten up and the police had done nothing about it and they were basically sort of saying well really our community is being ignored and you're allowing the national front to do whatever they want and that's not right really as a result what did the police do they instigate the sus laws by arresting some of the guys who'd gone and organized you know this peaceful march. that's right yeah yeah and that, you know yeah. this kind of thing it, it it's it's not you know 
it happens again and again and again because I mean, like, you know, just in the last, I think it was in the last five years in in uh, Paris, there was huge riots in France where right. there was a right. there was a kid that was a kid that was electrocuted and chased into a power, uh, I think, a power depot by the police, and he got fried, and then there was all that unrest in Paris. So I mean, you know, that inner urban, you know, and yeah. the whole issue yeah. of minorities, you know, this is a, a thing, like you said earlier, Bernie, that you know, maybe we, we've just coated it with a, with a thicker paint these days or, you know, or brighter colors, but it's still prevalent Absolutely. as it ever was. Well, we, yeah, we had it I here mean, uh, probably two, three years ago. We had uh, riots in London and several other of the big cities uh, in the UK. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was the same again. It was, uh, there was actually uh, here in Bath, which is a pretty small little town, but some of the shops, uh, were closing early and there was uh, there was kind of rumours going around that shit might be kicking off this evening so everyone was closing up and heading home early you know and it's just like you know what the fuck what the fuck's going on right so right. yeah it still happens and you know it's funny too like with uh, with reggae and dub I find it interesting that you know initially like people they look back and they see it originating from kind of the bush like the bush doctors you know back in jamaica you know and that you know but the thing is it's a relevant sound it's a relevant urban soundtrack i mean it, it it's a concrete soundtrack i mean you know whereas yeah. a lot of people yeah. would think of you know reggae as you know like i say you know like sitting on a beach and sitting under a tree with a big spliff you know it's not so much about that it's about you know the urban story the urban plight and you know i think with this film babylon really the the soundtrack and what they're saying i think that it, it really lays down you know a story of frustration a story of liberty of freedom in music you know that really rises above the shit of what they're in and, and i mean i yeah. think that dub and reggae has always done that you know it, i mean anybody who really, you know, doesn't have a brain in their head, just looks at reggae as, oh, fire one up, man, it gets so high, ah. But it's not, I mean, when you're really looking at reggae, you know, from, you know, a real strong eye, you can see that there's a lot of, a lot of story there. It tells the tale, man, of, you know, being the, being the odd man out and, you know, and having to struggle through uh, the social injustices, you know? But it was very much the uh, the the music of the uh, you know the young urban first generation second generation Jamaicans at the time. It sure. Was, you know that's what uh, you listen to. So of course it's going to be adapted and changed and tweaked and become that kind of uh, you know socially conscious soundtrack to what they were going through. Kind of you know like I said right. earlier like nowadays it would be grime or whatever. It's it's the same thing. It's just you know kind of something right. different. Well, like, <laughs> it's the same. You but look different. at. Uh, you look at stuff like, for example, like, uh, you know, uh, Grandmaster Flash and The Message, you know, I mean, something like that is really parallel to a lot of the original uh, reggae that came out. Like, I mean, uh, in uh, the late 70s and early 80s, like I say, it was more about the social situation as opposed to just kind of like, yeah, man, ho, 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 yeah, let's definitely. get so high, yeah. you know, like none of that shit, you know, no. So let's talk a little bit about the music. Um, the, the soundtrack is not easily available, but the whole uh, someone's gone and put every track up on the, 
on uh, YouTube, so I took the time to go and listen to the music, and I, I just I, I found it really, really invigorating. And, and actually, one thing that should be noticed, probably because the music is, um, is is so invigorating, that even though as dire as the situation can often get in the film, I never found this to be an oppressive film. Like it's not like a Ken Loach film. No, no. It's it's in in the end it's. I no, I wouldn't say life affirming or anything like that, but it really it wasn't as dire as it could have been. I think the ultimate message that you came at was something of positivity because Blue and his friends are you know, they have their sound system and and they have their beliefs and they're not going to be pushed around and real. I think ultimately, despite the last couple of frames of the film, it still does end up being. If not more positive, I, I, I don't know what am I trying to say. It, 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 it I never don't know. I think, um, I, I think uh, Blue's future isn't looking particularly uh, bright at the end, is it? After you know what kind of happens at the end. No, so uh, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I never feel, I never felt like watching this like I'd come out of a Michael Haneke film or a Ken Loach film. Oh no, no, no. I mean, re- remember that you would have seen that film, uh, Raining Stones. Yeah. Yes, I, I, yeah. I came, came out of that really wanting to slash my ribs. <laughs> uh, I, I never felt that watching watching this, and I, I'm wondering whether the music had something to do with it. I mean, you get you get ordinary scenes that really just like uh, where, where a beefy, I think, is walking his dog, and they're all having a go at, <laughs> at, at you know, the the type of dog he is. It's just little things like that, you know, just yeah. little, little moments, and you smile and you laugh, and it's not. Oh, this is their plight. It's really oppressive, and and greater British white society is horrible, and, and all that. You, you get just these little moments, and and it's little things that make you it's, smile. So it, it didn't always make you feel like you were um, having having uh, your your head being hit on with a hammer or anything like that. So it's a I good think you're right. I, I think um, the the music does contribute to that. There's a real right. energy to it. You know, Dan- all the way through the movie, which kind of carries you through, and it's you know, it is life affirming, and it's it's what they live for, and it's who they are, and that in itself is a, a positive thing, you know. So yeah, I, th- I think you're you're totally barking up the right tree there, Morris. I think the um, two of the uh, performers in uh, association, so there's this fellow Dennis Bovell who was responsible for uh, a, a good chunk of the music, and uh, this one little tune called Beefy's Tune, which I wish I'd have looked up who wrote the music for the full Monty, but it reminded me of uh, the main thing that sort of kept going in and out of the full Monty. Uh, but uh, yeah, some, some really, really great tunes in there, and but of course the, the one band that should really be mentioned here is uh, Aswad, who um, uh, Brinsley Ford is uh, the leader of and um, played Blue in the film, so I found myself you know, going down all these rabbit holes and listening to listening to their music, but um, absolutely fantastic. I, I, I really wish I could find um, a, a copy of the CD out there, but I, I went and asked around and apparently it's been deleted. Like The, the vinyl had long been deleted. The CD got released, I think, in 2005, 2006, but is once again off the market, so I don't know. I would hope that uh, that would come out again, but uh, I, I think I put up a link on the Facebook page to a list, uh, a, a YouTube list of uh, all of the soundtracks. So that is definitely one way that you can listen to uh, the excellent music from this film. I yeah, just absolutely loved it. Now, Wendy, you've already gone and said that you're not like necessarily a. a, a oh, actually, no. So you, Bernie, you said that you're not the big reggae buff. No. Did you find yourself um, inclined? Yeah, to no, look ab- a absolutely. Bit more into it? It's yeah, yeah, no, definitely. 
but uh, yeah, no, I, I do. I really like the soundtrack to this, and I, I don't know whether it's because of its association with the film or whether uh, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, as I say, I'm not the world's biggest uh, reggae fan, but um, yeah, this this does it for me. I think it's fantastic. So all right, look, any final thoughts from any of you? Uh, actually, so before I go around for final thoughts, I wanted to ask uh, Bernie: Have you seen um, a film called Rockers? And uh, how, so how does it compare? I haven't, so I can't tell you that. Okay, because I, I, I understand that this is not like the first film it made in England uh, about the Jamaican community and, and the... Um... No, well, I, I think... Rock, uh... Rockers is a little different. I mean, you know, it's it's more it, it's, it's more of a wider range Okay. of uh, people okay. but it's yeah it's a little bit different okay worth worth a look oh yeah yeah rock rockers is one of the it's funny like I, it's been years and years and years since i've seen it like i was saying to bernie like you know uh, local toronto uh tv station city tv they used to run music movies all night on friday and saturday nights and rockers was one that was usually in heavy rotation and it and it was one that actually played the midnight circuit in the 80s I remember that, and um, yeah, it's well worth checking out. Nice. So, okay, did, uh, so... did you guys watch this on YouTube? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because uh, whilst I was watching it, I did notice the uh, you know other things you may like down the side. I'm pretty sure Rockers was listed there, so I've got a feeling that might be on YouTube in its uh, entirety. So, right, might be worth checking out. Indeed. Mm. All right. Any final thoughts from the three of you? Um, I just wanted to say that I I feel that this film, despite you know like you said the language difficulties with the you know lack of subs and everything i feel like and wendy also mentioned you know the idea of the shared story in in a number of films i think that uh babylon is a film that you know can actually uh pull interest of people from all walks of life and you know even you know not necessarily anyone with an interest in reggae yep because um I think that there's something here that's really, you know, it's it's a human story, not so much as it is a music story, too. For sure. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, but I think, you know, like, for example, you know, I think it's a real sad state of affairs where in the past, you know, I've recommended films to people, you know, like, for example, that deal with music, you know, like, for example, like, Beat Street or something like that, and somebody would say, "Well, I'm not into, I'm not into hip hop. I'm not into rap. Like, why would I watch that?" And it's like, well, because well, there should it's be good. a certain timelessness, right? Exactly. There should be a certain timelessness to the characters and the stories that that supersedes the music in all the best movies. Like, you can totally not be a Beatles fan, but still find Hard Day's Night entertaining. You know, I think that's absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I think there's something here to actually uh, be uh, checked out, definitely. Mm-hmm. So as, as uh, you've already gone and pointed out, Bernie, this whole film is on um, uh, YouTube. I think actually several people have uploaded it. If you uh, so particularly want to, if you speak Spanish, there's uh, yeah, I one with that, Spanish yeah. subtitles. So, so there you Can go. you speak Spanish, Wendy? Maybe you should have watched it with the Spanish <laughs> subtitles. <laughs> yeah, that I could have failed in two languages. <laughs> El Babi, El Babylon. <laughs> So, so Wendy, maybe the next time you decide to go put up a, a video rather than doing a, um, a, a hip-hop drum track, maybe you ought to go up and do a, do a reggae track. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of amazing reggae drumming. I, I will never poo-poo that. I watched a really good documentary about Lee Scratch Perry that came out a few years oh, ago. Nice. I don't remember what it was called. <laughs> ah, we'll find it. We'll find it. 
Yeah, no, he he was an amazing figure. Yeah, I mean that man, like he could he could make he could make studio equipment out of anything. Like he had, they yeah. had nothing of studios. It was remarkable, like how they the, right. what they assembled and what they were able to put together, and how they came out well, with music that sounded as good as it did. Oh yeah, that's like you know not to go off on a tangent, but there was actually uh, an African group called Konoko Number One. Have you guys ever heard of those guys? Yeah, I know them. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, how they they actually take junkyard equipment, they take old speakers and stereo equipment and stuff, and they they make what they call Congotronics, where they actually do like yeah, almost like it's not dub, but it's almost like this hypnotic like uh, junkyard African psychedelic weird i don't know how to explain it but it's it's amazing it's really cool all right what we'll do now is um we'll go to a quick break and when we come back we'll talk briefly about what the uh, film we're going to be discussing on the next see here podcast episode number five it's uh, tim's choice so uh we'll be back in just a moment you're listening to see here something because coming up this is terry frost and i want to tell you about my new podcast the martian driving in the podcast me and a guest will look at obscure but interesting speculative fiction movies the ones that don't get enough love the obscure movies that you catch late at night you can't remember the name of but you really like them you can go to marsdriving.blogspot.com or subscribe to the paleo cinema feed in itunes the martian driving podcast watching the skies since 2012 and we're back from break thanks very much for uh having listened to episode four of see here podcast and next month for episode five it is tim's choice so uh we've, we've already done a once go around with the crew so we're starting up again so tim tell us about what you've picked well this one's uh one i think that's uh a bit more familiar to people out there uh i wanted to go with uh a man of uh, great stature when it comes to music, but he's not, you know, not not a tall guy, but a great guy in music. Uh, Mr. Paul Williams, I, I think uh, it's time for us to uh, go back to the paradise and look at the Brian De Palma's classic Phantom of the Paradise. This is an old favorite of mine, and uh, I think this is one of the best uh, music films ever made. Oh, big call, big call. Is it, I confess I haven't watched it, so is it as... Yeah, see, I've never seen it either, and I've heard such great things about it. So thank you for picking this. This is uh, this is one of, I'd say, probably the premier cult music films. Like, you know, to, 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 honest, to, to honestly tell you the truth, you know, I as much as I love music, I really have a problem with music films, a lot of music films. It's just, to me, they just kind of rub me the wrong way in the way they're presented or the music itself or... But this film, Phantom of the Paradise, for me, you know, not to give too much away, but all the tumblers just come in line with this film. I mean, this is the one to me that is what 
defines a music film. Right. Okay, well, immensely looking forward to that. Uh, and so you probably look for that sometime mid, mid to late May. That, uh, that one will go up. Uh, so any final words, plugs, promotions, events, things that you guys want to mention? Uh, I actually, there's a new podcast that should be out on the horizon soon. It, it, it's called Me and Me Plums. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I think I've heard something about that one. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, it, you know it, it should be, uh, should be on the horizon. So, yeah. <laughs> Wendy, any, any gigs that the listeners in the Chicago area should know about? Oh, no. I'm actually, uh, uh, on Friday the 26th or whatever, I, uh, we'll be having a party of, uh, for a, re- a release party for my comic book Banthology, which is an anthology of yeah. comics. It's all drawn for, by comic book, uh, ugh, of course they're drawn by comic book artists. All drawn by musicians. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a rock and roll comic. So, yeah, we're having that party on the rooftop of Reggie's Rock Club on that Friday night, and it's wow. gonna be... It's going to be a wide assortment of music and comic book people, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Fantastic. Cool. When you, whilst you, uh, you, you bring up comic books there, Wendy, as of course you do, being the queen of comic books, <laughs> I would just like to uh, remind listeners out there, uh, Saturday, May 3rd, free comic book day. Yes. So uh, please go along to your uh, local comic shop and uh, get some free comic books and also buy some comic books as well. Support your local comic shop and yeah. read comics because they're awesome. Big time. All right. With that, um, I'll, I'll just very quickly let you know if you um, uh, wish to write into us, uh, you can send us a, a, an email at seeherepodcast at gmail. Uh, join the Facebook group and talk about any music-related films that you like or just anything. If you want to talk about Sticky's Plums, then you're welcome to do that too. Um, and just generally let's join see if in, we can get the Facebook fun. group up to double figures oh we are in double <laughs> figures we are in double figures oh are we oh yeah, yeah. Ooh, Shall we take that back? actually yeah. and and the good news is the the downloads for the podcast are in triple figures so you know we're, awesome we're, 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 we're building an oh audience my God. absolutely awesome so, I think people were just curious to hear how bad I was in the last episode so oh. people love you no man Pe- people oh. love you and your plum sticky <laughs> and also, I want to say uh, I want to say a big uh, thanks to uh, everyone out there that's listening and supporting us because you know right. we wouldn't right. be anything if it wasn't for you. So we want to yeah, just yeah. say to everybody, thanks, yeah. a, thanks a hell of a lot. We'll second that motion. Yeah, thank you. Wendy offers thank you, you a big for indulging hug. us. Yes, I do. I wish I could hug everybody. I wish I could hug all three of you all day long. Oh, we we wish that you could okay. do that. We'll have to have a virtual... I'm hugging the computer right now. It's not the same, but... You know. um, okay, it's cold so, uh, and lifeless. Sorry, what was that? I said the computer's cold and lifeless. Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't think Wendy is. No. I think she's all. the exact opposite. Correct. All right, so with that, we uh, bid you a fond farewell, and uh, I should uh, make mention... I made mention of this in the first episode, but uh, just in case you haven't listened to the first episode, the uh, theme music... For uh, this podcast, I want to give big thanks to uh, my son Max, who uh, composed the theme music for the show. So, if you've been digging that, um, then um, and I hope you have, then uh, thank you very much, Max, for uh, a very cool theme for our show. So, we'll go out with it. And uh, thanks, we'll, Max. And yeah, we'll, Max is a champ. He is. Yeah, you thanks, know. Max. 
he is uh, he's even listening to the podcast never listens to love that album but he listens to this so uh, he'll hear this <laughs> oh dear uh, okay so uh, we'll catch you for uh, episode five of see here discussing phantom of the paradise so until then watch some great films listen to some great records support comic book day and uh, we'll um, speak to you soon cheers cheers It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.